Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Ion Travel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, the travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from San Diego, California at the Hotel Republic. I can't come to San Diego without my next guest being on the show simply because I sort of grew up watching what he represents. (laughs) When my folks let me stay up late and, and watch The Tonight Show... There was Joan Embry, always bringing another crazy animal, or two, or five, from the San Diego Zoo. And uh, joining us now from the San Diego Zoo is not Joan Embry, 
Doesn't look like Joan Embry. Will never be Joan Embry. No, absolutely not. Rick Schwartz, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And, and with that intro, I, I do have to say it's it would it's it's my job to say the the animals weren't really the crazy ones. More than Johnny, I think, was the crazy one when when Joan would come out with animal. Although there was the monkey that sat on his head. Come on. Yes, that's true. But if you think about it, a monkey wants to perch somewhere high to get a look around. So his head was the highest point. Well, that so. monkey did more than look around. <laughs> it might have done something else. <laughs> he yes. le- it gave a present. Yes. Okay, yes, fine. Yes. The thing is this. When I visited the San Diego Zoo, you guys have figured out, literally, how to make a zoo not just educational, but entertaining. Well, and that's the thing. We understand as a conservation-based organization that happens to run a, a world-famous zoo and safari park, we understand that if we just come and hit everyone over the head with the educational facts and the work that needs to be done for conservation for these species, it wouldn't be a very good time. So we want to make sure that they feel engaged, they're having an experience, not just being lectured at. And that's really the beauty of, of what we do. We give this balance of that experience while also educating. So as they have their adventures there, they have a better understanding then also as to what's going on with these animals in the wild. And, you know, it's really important to connect the dots. Otherwise, you're just looking at stuff with no context or perspective. Absolutely. You know, we do want people to come and have a great time, uh, but we definitely want them to have a sense of connection to the animals and understanding what's going on. And, and honestly, if at the end of the day they're inspired to say, hey, what can I do to help? We're right there for them to show them what needs to be done. And, of course, Americans, like so many other populations around the world, have a longstanding love affair with certain animals. Of course, of course. Uh, we'll start with, with we'll start with a P, the panda. Yes, yes, the giant panda. I know. We By the way, I went to visit the giant panda at the San Diego Zoo a couple of years ago, and he didn't want to play that day. No, they tend to eat or sleep. So if you're not there while they're eating, you're going to see their bottom up in a tree while they're <laughs> taking a nap. <laughs> but what's the other animal that people go nuts for? Oh, you know, I think you've got the standards. Everyone loves their big cats or their apes. You know, we have gorillas and orangutans. We've got the, the lions and the tigers, you know. I think what I find from, from my role there, my job of connecting people to wildlife, it's the ones that people didn't come to see that they then fall in love with. When All right, they so they them. came to see the elephant and then something happened. Right. And then they come around the corner and they meet the okapi. Or the they, what? Okapi. It's a, a relative of the giraffe that lives in the rainforest of Africa. As tall as a giraffe? No. Not as tall as a giraffe. Uh, more like an oversized elk with zebra-striped socks on. So people look at it, they think it's related to the zebra, but it's actually... <laughs> what is actually... this description you gave me? An oversized <laughs> elk with zebra... This is cool. Okay. <laughs> they are cool, right? And if you see them in person, they're just, they're wonderful. I mean, and that happens all the time. I see it a lot because that's my role is being there with the, the animals and the people. And I, and I see them go, oh, I had no idea that was even an animal. It, it didn't know it existed. And, and now it's their new favorite. Well, let me get to a tough subject because with so many species in the world essentially disappearing by the day. Yes. Right? I mean, the numbers are staggering. What can a zoo like San Diego do to educate people about that? Well, this is the great thing about what we do. Uh, You know, we have conservation partners and active conservation that we do around the world at about 100 different, different locations around the globe. So that gives us not just the opportunity to make a difference there, but bring that information back and share that. So, you know, if someone comes to San Diego, they want to have a great stay. They want to go to our beaches. They want to, you know, visit some things and, of course, see the San Diego Zoo. For them, their goal is to have a good time, and we recognize that. But while they're there on zoo grounds, we also explain to them, like you mentioned, there's some kind of scary things going on with these animals in the wild, and it's our opportunity then to teach them what they can do either from home or by being a part of our organization too. I would think that, uh, given what's going on right now in Australia, yes, uh, that you have some involvement with that because when you look at the sheer numbers of animals at risk or numbers of animals that have been killed yeah. in these wildfires, uh, they need your help. Absolutely, and this the sort of the the weird sort of twist of fate. We've been working in Australia for many, many years with koala research and koala conservation. And just as of last year, we started doing work with the platypus as well. And now we have two platypus at the safari park. And so all of our work that we're already doing there now is shifted uh, focus to rescue rescue and recovery. Exactly. We're finding that the platypus that we would trap and tag to see how many were out there now need to be trapped and brought back in because the creeks are getting polluted with the ash. I'm a fireman in New York. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I worry the most about is not the fire itself, but the speed of the fire. Yeah. Uh, And when you look at a fire that's whipped up by wind and you have dry kindling and no resistance whatsoever, you're looking at a fire that's moving at about two miles an hour. That doesn't seem very fast. (laughs) That is amazingly fast. 
in terms of even even be able to stop a fire, let alone fight it. For an animal, at a certain point, there's nowhere to go. Well, yes, and and what we have noticed and seen is that um, you know with the the fires are so large, they're creating their own climate. You know, they're creating their own wind force. Uh, they're joining together, creating mega fires. Our researchers that are out there were able to get ahead of many of those fires uh, to bring in some of the wildlife that they've been working with over the years and protect them. But that's just the first step. And and what we're faced with now is is the recovery. You know, we know here in Southern California where we've had fires, it takes a couple years. Same thing for the wildlife in Australia now. And so we're finding that there are animals that, that survived that need medical assistance. There are others that managed to somehow avoid damage but now live in an ecosystem that is a wasteland so what we're supporting and, right that, now, and that will not support them right exactly there's nothing to eat nothing to drink it's just burnt out and so we are now uh, we're in the process and currently sending money to as we're also in the middle of fundraising to set up our researchers and scientists out there with funds that they can do food drops and set up water stations and they're actually doing that right now but we recognize this is not a telethon where you raise money one week and you say okay yay we did it this is something we're in the long haul for this is going to be months and months and months of work. How can people listening to this show help out? www.endextinction.org slash help. Just endextinction.org slash help. That is an immediate landing site where you can either type in how much money you would like to donate or you can click a preset number and that money goes directly to the relief efforts in Australia through our organization because we have a direct tie there. We've been working there for so many years. So. And of course, you've learned some lessons about Australia already here in California. Yes, yes, of course. And in the other part of it too, I, I want to make sure people understand, San Diego Zoo and the Safari Park, we are run by San Diego Zoo Global. This is a nonprofit organ- organization. It's been nonprofit since it was established over 100 years ago. And so even if you're not in a position where you can find that website or you can donate by coming and visiting us. The money that is brought in by all of that, it, once we get everything covered for operations and running what we do, that money goes to our conservation as well. Exactly. And speaking of coming in and visiting you, the coolest thing that any zoo can do, it started at the Philadelphia Zoo, which, by the way, is America's oldest zoo. It's true. Uh, it's overnights. You can stay overnight mm-hmm. at the zoo. Yes, the zoo and Safari Park both. I highly recommend the Safari Park experience. There's a full-on solid tent campground there. It's a wonderful experience, great for all ages, and there's different levels you can buy into as far as the luxury tents or just a regular roughing oh, it oh, tent. Oh, come on. No, there's, we're not <laughs> glamping at the zoo. You can if you want. You can if you want. Are you serious? Yeah, it's a really cool setup. We have butler service and guys dressed as penguins? Not quite what? a butler no. service, but there are. there's a campfire with s'mores. Uh, there's then a morning when you get up, you have a special behind-the-scenes tour before the zoo even opens. So well, it's a really cool unique. Thing. Yeah, it's a really unique experience, and I have to say the animals, many species, have a wide variety of calls they make as sun goes down or sun comes up that you only get to experience if you either work there or you spend the night there. The lesson that I learned about how important that is and how how popular it is happened in an unlikely place in Honolulu, the Honolulu Zoo. Okay. Most tourists never go there because they're at the beach or at the resorts. It's true, yeah. At the end of Kalakaua Avenue, there's the Honolulu Zoo, and they have something called Zookeeper for a Day. Mm-hmm. And any kid from like, you know, 6 through 12 will get picked up and taken over there for a day. It's a nominal charge, and they're walking around with the zookeepers all behind the scenes, and for the parents who first learn about it, they go, great, this will be a good day for us to be free from the kids. <laughs> what they don't realize is the kids go back every single day. Right, yeah. no, I, I mean, it really works. Yeah, and it, it is, it's one of those things where I see it all the time. Kids have a natural desire to want to be close to nature and animals. Curiosity is there. I think as we grow, we, we tend to, to maybe part from that a little bit or lose sight of that. But that's a great thing about when a family visits a zoo. Is it all comes back. You can see it, right? You can see it in the adults. You see it in the grandparents. Everyone kind of leans in when it's like, oh, wow, what's that over there? You know, And, and it's really special to see that. And I, I, I value being a part of that connection. Well, i got to ask one very important question that yes. you're not expecting. Uh-oh. What's the one animal there that's overlooked at the zoo, that's forgotten, that is the loneliest animal in the zoo <laughs> that nobody cares to visit. Go, Rick. The zoo director. No, I mean, you know, I think, again, it's one of those things where people come to the zoo with expectations of a certain species they want to see. but then They, they, want, ra- they have their bucket list of animals. Right, exactly. But they round the corner and they see something called a binturong or a fusa or a lemur. And they're like, oh, my gosh. And I can see that fascination bubble up. And they, they've never heard of that species before. And now they're, they're meeting it right up close and personal. But it's not a petting zoo. No, it is not. No. One of the big things we like to foster is an understanding that wildlife, even those in the zoo environment, we, we want to be respectful of their space. And we hope that people will take that respect that they learn in the zoo out if they're camping or hiking as well and they see their local wildlife. 
and and use that same respect with the other animals they have to deal with every day, otherwise known as homo sapiens. Yes, yes. There's actually a lot of connections on how you want to work with wild animals and humans. <laughs> it, and it, you know, it is. It's all about respect. It really is. Otherwise known as stay out of my face. <laughs> Right? I suppose, yeah. It's a universal language of respect. I suppose. If some animals want that, and and some people want that, then certainly. Rick Schwartz from the San Diego Zoo. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for having me. And by the way, if you're coming to San Diego, check in with the zoo. And again, the website for helping out in Australia? Endextinction.org slash help. As folks who listen to the show regularly know, I try to get down to San Diego at least once a year to broadcast because it's one of my most favorite cities. When you consider how manageable it is, the weather, uh, just all the diversity that's down here. And if you're a boat geek like me, you've got to get out on the water. And one of the things I always like to do and have them on the show are the folks from the USS Midway. And joining me now from the USS Midway, uh, Scott McGaw. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, you know... In New York, of course, we've got the Intrepid. Yes. Uh, we've got the Missouri out in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had the Midway here how long? Uh, we opened in 2004, just completed our 15th year. And that's a relatively new phenomenon here. It is. Uh, it took us 12 years to get Midway, the decommissioned ship. And uh, where did you get it from? Where was it sitting when you brought it in? Uh, the Mothball Fleet in Bremerton, Washington. So when we finally got all the permits, it took us uh, 13 days at three and a half knots, a single seagoing tug to bring it down from the Seattle area to San Diego. Well, I, my, I have fond memories of Bremerton, Washington, because that's also a sub base. Yes, it is. And I actually, and here's where I get to feel really old. Uh, back in 1982, uh, I was the first journalist given a top security clearance to go on board an, an attack nuclear sub on a classified mission. And we left from, I, we left from Bremerton. Bremerton. That's a, as much as I'm still allowed to tell that's you. That's right. You for know the, that. For the rest of your life. For the rest of my life. That's right. And all I can tell you is, and I'll let everybody guess the answer, is that after that mission, there was a movie done. And the movie that was done after that mission included about 80% of what happened on my mission. And that movie was called The Hunt for Red October. Much of it was filmed in San Diego. It was. And, uh, and that sub that I was on, ironically, was called the USS Bremerton. Huh? They just retired it. They just decommissioned it. And... And it's a funny story. I can't tell you who sent me the note. I'm not allowed to even tell you that. But they were, they were reminiscing about my time on the sub. And they said, you probably don't know this, but we all received medals of commendation for what we did that day. Wow. So, you know what? Interesting stories that just have to go Special. with it. They have to go away. That's right. They have to go. But if you go back and watch the movie, other than Sean Connery defecting, which was not part of our scheme. I would imagine. Just about everything that happened on that sub happened on our mission. Crazy, huh? The mission that you're not supposed to be talking about, and here we are. Well, I didn't say what happened. Oh, I, at the end of the story. Got it. Got it. That, yeah, we're done with that story. Okay. <laughs> but you mentioned Bremerton, Scott, so I, I had know. to say you were coming And off down. we go. Exactly. <laughs> so here you are getting this. How difficult was it to get the Navy to say, okay, you can have the ship? It wasn't so much the Navy. Uh, it, well, in, in part. Uh, it took us 12 years, $8 million, uh, donated dollars, 31 permits. California's regulatory environment uh, is rigorous, to say the least. But the Navy was very, very concerned that we would be a successful business if nothing else. The Navy has many decommissioned ships as museums that are not financially successful. And there's a big worry that someday they're going to fail and there's going to be rusting ships in different bays around the country. So we had By the way, that's a legitimate worry. It's here today. Yeah. It's happening today with with ships that don't have, that aren't financially successful as businesses. So, But to have to, to, be, to be able to bring the ship down, you had to certify that it was environmentally not toxic. Yep. You had to make sure that everything was pumped out of there first. We, that we had a 365-day-a-year maintenance plan that would preserve the hull's integrity, 2,000 compartments, three football fields long, and be successful as a museum in the finest tradition of the legacy of service to country. And you've done it. We have. Uh, in 15 years, we have become the fifth most popular museum of any type in America out of 35,000 and the most visited ship in the world. The most visited ship in the world? Yes, most visited naval ship museum in in the world. More than the Intrepid? Yes, we're at 1.4 million people. Wow. 275 private events at night 
uh, six nights a week, limiting that to uh, three years in advance. How many weddings? Uh, very few, but only one type of, and we discourage them, you know, uh, breezy <laughs> out on the flight deck. There is one category of bride that we encourage. Can you name that category of bride that it's, we think is okay? Oh, this is a trick question. What? Women in the Navy. They get it. They don't need to have their hair perfect, some 20-year-old, you know, and the mother. So they, they want to be on the ship, oftentimes, on the ship uh, for personal, other personal reasons, and, and we welcome them aboard. And veterans. Of course, and veterans, absolutely. What's the most surprising exhibit that people just are not expecting to see on this ship? Um, what you don't see in the Top Gun movies, the floating city at sea below the flight deck, the, uh, the 4,300 men whose average age was only 19 running a city so that an, op an airport on the roof could operate. They don't I, make movies down below. I remember when I was 12 years old, I was, in, I was on my first vacation with my parents overseas, uh -huh. um, and we ended up in Nice. Sure. And the 7th Fleet showed up. Yep. Yep. And my mom got talking to somebody. She, she didn't even realize he was the admiral. The next thing you know, we got invited on the admiral's uh, barge and taken out to, a, to the Enterprise. And home, homeported here in San Diego for many years. And I got on, what was my biggest amazing surprise about me being on the Enterprise? Ready? Go How ahead. much ice cream they got to eat. Well, Midway had not only uh, served ice cream, they had an ice cream shop. On board, there were sailors whose job, our tax dollars at work, whose job was to make ice cream and milkshakes. Not a bad job. Not a bad gig if you can get it. Not a bad 19. gig. So, but in, if you go to the Intrepid in New York, of course they've got the uh, the Black Widow on the deck. Sure. I mean, planes that never flew off a carrier. Correct. Uh, the Concord's parked next, next door. door. Um, you got an old diesel sub down there too. Yep. What have you got on the deck that's going to wow me? Um, we are a Naval Aviation Museum, so you're going to see an authentic F-18 Hornet. Uh, that literally flew at Miramar uh, as a bogey, as they showed it. I'm in, sure in you've movies. got an F-4. So, F oh, it was Phantoms from World War II. Uh, from By the Vietnam. way, you can always tell what an F-4 was because it was a smoking plane. It was. That plane, that exhaust came out. You could never miss it. Absolutely. F-8 Crusaders. We have aircraft all the way back to World War II that fought in the Battle of, of Midway. So what you're going to see are the real deal aircraft that literally took off uh, from aircraft carriers, many of which took off from and operated off Midway. And, of course, this is a, a, an aircraft carrier that saw duty in Vietnam. Yes, Korea. And, and uh, the, the um, Korean era. Four, um, amazing history on this, on this ship. 47 years uh, from the end of World War II, just after the war, uh, through Desert Storm, longest-serving carrier of the 20th century. Imagine all that history. And when was it finally retired? Uh, 1992, here in San Diego, towed up to Bremerton to the Bothball Fleet until we brought her back home. Amazing. Open seven days a week? Open seven days a week, uh, except for Christmas and, and uh, uh, Thanksgiving. Um, uh, very much of an international icon now. 30% of our guests are from around the country. And can you guess, Peter, the most commonly spoken foreign language on Midway? I've got to say Japanese. Wrong. Good guess. And for a while it was. Mandarin. The China market. The China market, the tourism Whoa. market. Uh, it's a whole different world in the tourism industry, but uh, yes, we are very much have become an, an international icon. Joining me now, Emmy-nominated journalist, filmmaker, and ambassador for the San Diego History Center, the one and only Elsa Sevilla. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. You know, I've come to San Diego for so many years, uh, first as a correspondent for Newsweek in the 70s, and of course, every year since. It's amazing how many museums that are here that people don't even know about. And most of my audience probably has never heard of the San Diego History Center. I would agree with you. A lot of people know us as the San Diego Historical Society, but a few years back we changed our name to the San Diego History Center because we wanted to incorporate the museum exhibit, and we have 2.5 million black and white photos and historical documents in the, our research library, which is fantastic. You can't get me out of there because there's so many really cool pictures, historical documents, and stories that go with each item. So we also have K through 12 education. We also have the Sarah Museum in Presidio Park. So we have two museums, but the History Center is in the heart of Bell Park. And when we talk about the history of San Diego, 
we're going back to, to basically the Spanish and the missions and everything. Actually, we're going back further than that, 12,000 years and beyond. Cause it's I want to see one black and white photograph from 12,000 years ago. Well, if you're talking about <laughs> photos, yes. Actually, photos would be after the missions. But I talking, know, I know. <laughs> if you're talking about um, San Diego history, we're talking about the first people of the Kumeyaay Nation who are the indigenous people here in San Diego who've lived here for 12,000 years and beyond. And they get overlooked a lot. And so um, we've researched the um, Kumeyaay and we have told their stories and they're really incredible stories to tell. You know, part of the problem of storytelling is sort of like institutional knowledge. It's that you've got to be able to hand down the language. You've got to be able to teach that history. It's, it's, it's about person-to-person storytelling, not just in the books. You see this in Hawaii. You see this in the Pacific Islands, right? And you see it here. Yeah, definitely. If you're talking about the first people of the Kumeyaay Nation, it, their oral histories for them, and that's how they learned their culture, their language, their songs, and that's how they passed them down through generations. And what's interesting about those stories, and, and you can draw a lot of parallels, is I'll give you an example. I was on the, in, the, in the remote islands of the Lao Archipelago in Fiji, and their storytelling there was originally done on tree bark. It was the talpa. Right? And they would tell the entire story of the village on, on bark. Right, And you go to other islands, in the, it, it, go to Egypt. They did the, it was all the hieroglyphics on the, on the walls. Right? How are the stories told here? Well, here, for the first people of the Kumeyaay Nation, they're orally. But there is some incredible findings. There's rock art in San Diego and south of San Diego in Mexico that um, the Kumeyaay Nation is on both sides of the border. And, of course, 12,000 years ago, there was no border. But there um, are there's rock art and there's... Um, you know, these images on the rock that have been painted, and people believe that they've been there for a thousand years. Um, so have they interpreted them? That's the hard part. I have not found somebody who has, I think they have ideas of what it may be. I talked to the Kumeyaay people, and some of them are um, spiritual, and they have a, a sacred meaning to them, but other ones may be a little bit more and if you see them, you're like, okay, maybe that looks like the sun. But we really don't know unless you're an expert or unless, I would say, um, someone from the Kumeyaay Nation. And speaking of no borders, you were born in Tijuana. I was. Moved, I moved to San Diego when you were, what, five years old? I was five years old, yes. So no borders. That, well, there was a border yeah, then. There yeah. was a border then, yeah. yes. Now, I'm expecting to see one of these symbols to be interpreted as, one day in the distant future, a president will build a wall here. No, please, no. Yeah. Yeah. But bottom line is, speaking of Tijuana and San Diego, they didn't build a wall. They built a bridge. People don't realize it's the coolest thing going, right? The cross-border mm-hmm. express. Everywhere else in the country, we're talking about a wall on immigration. Here, you park your car, you walk 800 feet, you're in Tijuana in the main terminal of the Tijuana airport. And if you do your homework... The airfares there are so much lower. Mm-hmm. You yeah. can go anywhere. They even have flights from Tijuana to Beijing now. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. I just mentioned that because I knew you came You came across the border, Elsa. I did, I yeah. Know. And I find it fantastic because I think that I have a different perspective having two cultures, having two languages, having two you know, traditions from both sides of the border. And I think that when people have those experiences, I mean, you travel all over the world, you get you know, this incredible knowledge from different places around the world. So having those two, you know, Tijuana and San Diego, it's pretty cool. And of course, part of your museum deals with the missions. It does, yeah. The San Diego History Center, we want to tell the history of all communities. And this is something new that we are incorporating. Before, it was mostly focused on certain um, certain communities, but now we want to definitely go to San Isidro, which is right next to Tijuana. We want to go to National City. We want to go out to the East County with the first people of the Kumeyaay Nation, all the way up to the North County, which is Oceanside, Escondido, San Marcos. And so, yeah, we do uh, focus on the missions, but we also want to tell the different perspectives. And not only that, we want to let communities, people from their own community, tell their history. They know it the best. Or learn their history. And in some cases, yes. I mean, that's what I've been doing for the last 12 years. I mean, when you see preoccupation in this country with, with websites like Ancestry 20, and you know, right? People can, can obsessed with their genealogy. You'd always want to think, okay, I got that part of the deal, but what about the history of where I'm living? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that's what happened to me. I was in um, at San Diego State University. I took a Chicano Studies 
class and you know the light bulb went up and I said you know I want to know about more about my history so fast forward 20 30 years later I'm producing historic places which is San Diego's history and so I was learning along with everybody else okay when you were producing that what was the biggest wake-up call surprise for you that you had no idea it was even there or what it signified I think there was a lot of things but one of them is one of our museums the Sarah Museum which is in Presidio Hill um, near Old Town, so not far from here. I think the biggest thing is that, so there's a, the Sarah Museum building looks like a mission and people think it is the mission from the 1700s, but it's not. This building was built in 1928, 1929, and so it was the original building site for the Historical Society in 1928-29. So, I think the biggest thing is also there's nothing there now, which is the mission, the San Diego mission. I did not know that the mission was first founded at Presidio, but five years later it was moved to its current location where it is now in Mission Gorge, which is just five miles away. And they did that because of, unfortunately, horrible things were happening with the soldiers and the young women who were part of the Kumeyaay Nation. They were being raped and um, some horrible things. And so the mission was moved. And how did we learn about that? Well, a lot of information. The Spanish were very good at keeping logs. And so... Yeah, but they were revisionist historians at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Just ask Christopher Columbus. Exactly, exactly. So I think that between gathering all the information that was left behind between the Spanish, and there was some other information from other groups, and we've not we exactly at the History Center, but I think historians through the decades decades and centuries have been able to kind of piece things together as best as possible because, you know, producing historic places has taught me one thing, that everybody has a different perspective on history. We now, Historic Places is on PBS. It is, here in San Diego, KPBS, yeah. Yeah. And what's the one message that you want to give people to get them to come to this place? Well, to the San Diego History Center, we make history exciting. You're going to learn something every day or every time you come. We have fantastic exhibits, education, um, archives, and, uh, you know, we have things for kids, for families. The website? SanDiegoHistory.org. My next guest is a favorite of mine. I do not come down to San Diego without talking to him because he knows about everything that's going on in and under the water. He's a legendary fifth-generation commercial fisherman and the founder of, what an appropriate name, Tommy the Fishmonger, because his name is Tommy Gomes. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks. Good to see you. Always good to see you. You know, I always you know, go back to conversations we always have, uh, and it's not just because it's, it's politically correct to talk about it. Now, you were talking about it before it was politically correct, and that's sustainable f- seafood. Yeah, we've been pushing that for a very, very long time. You know, everywhere in the world, they eat the whole fish, and here we don't. In the United States, we've, we've lost touch with our food. We want a four-ounce piece of fish, bloodline out, skin off, no bones, and we don't want it to taste like fish. Well, then order a piece of chicken. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which tastes just like chicken, by the way. Which tastes yeah. just like chicken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But that's just one thing. So we're, we're, we're basically not using the whole fish. Yeah, we need to utilize the whole fish. Um, Peter, every fish has a story, and, that, and every fish is like a whole puzzle that you take apart. Instead of putting the puzzle together, you take the fish apart. And there's so many edible pieces that we're not doing that. We need to utilize the whole fish. Now, when I say every fish has a story, that one big-eyed tuna or that one swordfish creates so many jobs within the city of San Diego from where you go to get your groceries for the boat, the bagger, the cashier, the stalkers that stock the stores, all the way to the fuel dock when you're getting your fuel, the guys that are handling the hoses and stuff like that, not to mention uh, the crews on the boat. And then you go, you ship stores and all that, your lines, your hooks and all that. And then you go fishing and then you come back in and now you have the guys that operate the crane, you have the ice company, you have the forklift drivers, then you have the fishmonger like myself and the packers and filleters. And it goes all the way to the restaurant where you have the front of the house, the back of the house, the dishwasher, so that people can come. They save their pennies across America and across the world to come to our great city, San Diego, to eat the finest seafood that we have. It's kind of strange when we don't think of it that way. Well, people don't connect the dots. That's the problem. But you get it, see? Yeah. You understand what I'm talking about. That one fish 
has a story a story and and we need to tell that story so that people understand that good seafood is not cheap and cheap seafood's not good it's just not okay define cheap seafood to me um you know trace and trust um gosh how do i explain it trace and trust begins with guys like me i know where the product came from i know who caught it i know how it was caught Whereas there's a lot of foreign fish that's coming into this country that's not inspected by the FDA. There's no... How, how could that be? Uh, it just comes in all over the world. It's super cheap. It's gassed tuna. And when I mean gassed, it's carbon monoxide tuna. Yeah, I want to and, talk about that because it changes the color of the fish. Yeah, it's great if you have a, a puppy pit bull that's chewing on things. You can give them one of those and that's what they're good for. Um, they don't change <laughs> color. They don't change taste. They don't change texture. They'll last four, five, six days in your refrigerator without changing. We don't have that option. See, uh, this isn't the beef business. It doesn't get better with age. We need to move it. We need to bring in the best quality fish and move it at the best and fairest price for our general public. Right. So, you, but I, I got to go back to you saying that all this, this stuff is not being inspected. Well, a lot, the majority of it's coming in not inspected, you know, whether it's farmed fish or what I call... Uh, pirated fish where there's no no flag no registration on the boat they're offloading on a super tanker or a steamer out in the middle of the ocean and that goes into some place into the south pacific or or africa or sri lanka and it gets processed there and then it gets flown into our country well we don't know who caught that fish we don't know where it came from and that brings up the whole thing of you know slave labor unregulated fisheries and all that and while our american fishermen i mean we're under a microscope and what i mean by that is i want you to think of it like this our american fishermen are are under such a microscope with satellite tracking and everything i want you to think about this if you were driving a brand new car that every time you went over the speed limit you automatically got a ticket in the mail that's what our american fishermen are going through stuff like that scary right yeah and we're the guys that are doing it right and we're the ones that get beat up the most. All right. So we've got the, the bad fish coming in. Yep. Not inspected. Yep. Not properly labeled in many cases. A lot of cases mislabeled. Okay. Yeah. What, oh, well, yeah. I, I, come on. What's the difference? <laughs> what, give me an example of something that we would normally go to a store and buy or order on a menu at a restaurant that has been completely mislabeled. Escalar, also known as mislabeling um, white tuna. Now, when, you think of, when I think of white tuna, I think of albacore. Albacore tuna uh, is a white tuna. Uh, Escalar is not a white tuna. Uh, That's t- Chilean toothfish. No, Patagonian toothfish Excuse is Chilean me. sea bass, uh, okay, which is it. absolutely excellent and decadent. Um, not overfished. There is several companies out there that are MSC certified, and it's a beautiful fish. Tilapia. Farm-raised tilapia that's coming into this country unregulated and in literal cesspools, uh, being raised in cesspools, is being served as snapper and other items. We're coming to you from San Diego, California and the Hotel Republic. Uh, An amazing hotel when you think about it. It first started as a W, then became a Renaissance, and then not too long ago became a Republic. (laughs) It became a Republic. It, it announced its independence. No, it's called the Hotel Republic, and it's very close to, uh, I mean, it is in downtown San Diego, but walking distance to uh, uh, the Broadway Pier, the Gas Lamp Quarter. I mean, it's uh, got a great location and a great restaurant, by the way. Uh, I, I have to heartily recommend the, the French fries, but we'll get into that later with the chef. In any case, it's always a pleasure to be here because as someone who actually lives on a boat myself, I love the water and use any excuse I can to get near it. And in San Diego, you don't need much of an excuse because you're near it. And joining me now, somebody who knows a lot about the water. He's the president and CEO of the Maritime Museum of San Diego, Dr. Ray Ashley. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Peter. You know, I was just saying to you off, off, uh, off mic that when I first came down to San Diego as a correspondent for Newsweek back in 1971, I remember getting out of the airport right there at Lindbergh Field and coming around the water. And the first thing I saw was the Star of India. Sure, sure. It, and it's still one of the first things people see. It's one of those, it's in a prominent location and it sort of stands out and it's become iconic for that reason. And it's been around since how long? Well, since 1927. But when was it built? Uh, originally built in 1863 on the Isle of Man. 
and uh, was a British ship that carried people uh, from from Europe to uh, to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, eventually, it became a lumber carrying vessel, and then finally a fisheries vessel. But it's been a museum in San Diego since 1927, and it's part of your exhibit. It is indeed. Yeah, it's one of ten ships that we have there. Now you've got a tall ship, you've got a swift boat, mm-hmm. right? Several tall ships, actually. Yeah, a galleon. Yes. What else? Well, there's this state of California's tall ship. It's an 1847 revenue cutter. Uh, San Diego's original pilot boat, which takes tours of the bay. Does it, it still operates? It still operates. Oh, that's, see, that's the cool part when you get out in the water. Sure. We've got a 1904 steam yacht that is the last operating vessel that fought in combat in the Great War more than 100 years ago. You have a tugboat? Uh, we don't have a tugboat. You don't have a tugboat? No, but we make use of them frequently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. But the Star of India doesn't move, does it? Uh, we sail her every two or three years, and she's actually going to be moving down to BE Systems in February for her 10-year dry docking. That's got to be a complicated task. It, it tends to be that, yes. Wooden boats are not forgiving. They're not. Well, she's iron, which is helpful, but there is a lot of wood in her, and that part of it is not so forgiving. <laughs> exactly. You've been with the museum for 25 years. That's correct. What's the most interesting thing for people to know that they're not expecting when they, when they come down That there? they're not expecting. Well, a lot of people just don't know it's a museum because they, there's a popular assumption that museums have to be in buildings. Of course, we, we don't have a You're building, a floating so we museum. We're a floating museum. And in many ways, it's kind of like a living history park or a battlefield um, historic site, except in most of those... There's one moment in time represented, like Gettysburg or Jamestown. But in our case, it's an outdoor museum, but it represents all these different moments in time going back thousands of years uh, to the present day. And, of course, you're particularly well-known for one ship, a galleon, the San Salvador. Well, that was the most recent one. It's the newest ship we have, but it's it's the oldest ship that we have a representation of. So, And, and it's, it's a vessel we built ourselves. Uh, launched her only about three years ago. And full was, scale. Full scale, yeah. And she's uh, sailed Built out of what? Out of wood. So you, you <laughs> did the old school here. Yes, she's built out of wood. She's the closest representation we could make to the vessel uh, that, that we think Cabrillo would have used on his voyage of exploration to California in 1542. And the, the thing that surprises me, and maybe surprises you, is how small it really is. Well, it is. Um, at that time, it was one of the largest vessels. In the I know. Everything's got to be put it, in context. It is, yeah. it is. And indeed, people sail around the world today on much smaller vessels than the San Salvador. So it's all to, you know, it's all to context, really. Yes, but seriously, to take that boat in the ocean uh, over long distances, sure. over long periods of time, is, it represents a certain amount of fearlessness. Uh, sometimes, you know, all in all, I think... Uh, uh, the way we sail her, and, and we, we, we don't lack for people that want to go sailing on it. Let's put it that way. When you get down, I, I, I'm almost saying like the museum, but it's, it's, it's so many different vessels. They're all open for inspection? Yeah, they, they, all, they all are. If there's one of the vessels that happens to be out sailing, like if the San Salvador is away or if the pilot is out on one of our tours, then maybe that moment they're not all available. But for most of the time, 90% of the time, you can go on board 10 ships, and each one is like stepping onto a time machine and going back to a different place. And submarines? Two submarines. Um, a Russian uh, attack submarine. A, a real one? A real one. Yeah, it was actually... Diesel? It's diesel electric. And it spent its career, much of it, off San Diego trying to capture the electronic signature of U.S. naval vessels going in and out of San Diego Bay. She did the same thing off Japan. And we do have a photograph of the OSS Midway, which is down the road from us, taken from the periscope of the submarine moored pretty close to Oh, my to God. Her. Okay. I have to ask the stupid question. Other museums get gifts or bequests or donations. How'd you get the Russian sub? Um, well, it was at the end of the Cold War. The Russians were disposing of a lot of surplus military equipment. A group of businessmen in Vancouver bought this vessel. She then was purchased by another group in Seattle, and then we got her from Seattle. But my first day on the job, uh, I got a call from someone who was announced, announced himself as, as a Russian vice admiral. At this point, that transfer yet to be made, and he was asked me if I wanted to buy a submarine. He said, I'd love to come to San Diego because I love San Diego. I think it's a great city. And I said, well, you've been here before? He goes, well, I, I didn't come by land, but I've seen it through a periscope, and it looks great. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, I could be the guide on the submarine, and I'm trying to pick up, you know, what it is. And it turns out that the Russian Navy had given him the submarine in lieu of a pension, and he was trying to sell it, and ultimately it wound up with us. 
So he, he made the deal. Well, he made the deal originally with these businessmen, but it did wind up with us, and I, I'm assuming he came out okay. I love the idea that he's seen San Diego from the Paris. Right, right. I yeah. love, you know, near in Long Beach, uh, not recent, I mean, not too long ago, I was visiting the Queen Mary, and there was a Russian sub there. And that's the same class. It's a sister ship to the one that we have. They, it's odd where all these things end up, isn't it? Okay, so that's one sub. What's the other sub? Uh, it's the USS Dolphin, which is the deepest diving submarine in history. It was a really important vessel historically for testing out all all kinds of equipment. and. What strategies. years are we talking about? It was built in the late 60s, so it is actually older than the Russian another sub. Another diesel sub? Yes, another diesel sub, but there's no comparison in the quality of construction or the you know, the, the sophistication of the vessel when you go on board. And they make a nice contrast that way to go on an American submarine that was state-of-the-art in the 60s to a Russian submarine and state-of-the-art in the 70s. There's miles of difference between them. Well, for those people who understand submarines, the one thing the Russians couldn't lick up until recently was their noise problem. Uh, they could go deeper than we could. They could go, in some cases, faster. But they couldn't lick the noise problem, so we always knew where they were. Right. Well, ours is not very noisy now. It doesn't go anywhere. I know. Well, I know. I'm just talking about when they (laughs) operated, Ray. Indeed. If you watch our show on PBS called The Travel Detective, you see we we have a weekly segment there called Hidden Gems, where I take you to all the places, the destinations, and the experiences that are not in the guidebooks and not in the brochures that are accessible to the public where you can actually have a much more immersive and genuine experience. My next guest knows all about that because she's the author of Abandoned San Diego and the founder of HiddenSanDiego.net. Jessica Johnson, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm good. So I'm a big fan of Hidden Gems. Uh, anywhere I go in a city, you you put that together, haven't you? Yeah. So let's walk through some of this because people know about the zoo. They know about Balboa Park. They know about the Midway. They know they know about, you know, all the different amusement parks or entertainment opportunities in about a 50-mile radius of San Diego. What do you know that I don't know? Probably a ton. Oh, stop. <laughs> I'm a native San Diegan, and I've always been interested in kind of the underworld of San Diego and the forgotten old historic places. So that's kind of been my mission to find it all. All right. So give me a forgotten gotten historic place um well i recently went to i guess i wouldn't say it's necessarily historic but one of the most recent places i went to is the white lady cave which is usually accessible only by boat um, but during low enough tide you can go into it and now, wh- where is it i usually don't tell it's in la jolla come on you gotta tell me <laughs> it's in la jolla but what the the backstory is is that in the early 1900s a lady and her husband went on a honeymoon and they went into the cave and she got swept away and like later on her brother went into the cave and the cave is actually taken on the silhouette of her in her bride's gown and her hair up in a bun with the flowers around and it looks like a perfect silhouette of her. Wow. Yeah. That's a hidden gem. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's number one. Give me another one in the city. Um, how about the old California Theater, which is right around the corner? It's actually, they were there was a huge fight between Save Our Heritage Organization and the developers. It's been abandoned for about 30 years now and just completely falling apart. Um, I've been inside of it. It looks beautiful, but um, they were going to completely demolish it, but they finally came to an agreement to keep some of the historic features and... It's still going to be a high-rise condominium, though. And, you know, we talk about abandoned San Diego. Mm-hmm. So th- th- that one's coming back. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. What about the water park? Um, so that was actually last week, and we did get busted by the cops. <laughs> <laughs> There's an abandoned water park on the way to Palomar Mountain uh, that's just been sitting there for, I think, at least 20 years. People told me that they used to go there in the 80s, so maybe even longer than that. But it's just kind of being overrun by nature and graffiti, but it just sits there like a time capsule. Now. Stupid question. When you talk about the theater, when you talk about the the water park, who owns these? Okay, so the water park, I was told by the cop <laughs> that it's owned by the Paula Reserv- Indian Reservation. Oh, well, then you're, you're trespassing. We didn't know that. <laughs> well, we know it now. Now, now yeah. I know that. Um, the, the theater is owned by, I guess, the developers, and that's why... They're about to turn into condos. Now, most people don't really, when they, when they think of the gold rush in California, they think of San Francisco, of course, the 49ers. But San Diego is also part of the gold rush. Correct. Where? Julian. And it actually used to be a larger town than the city of San Diego now, back where, in the day. Now, for, for my audience, where is Julian? It's the mountains of San Diego. So from central San Diego, it's about an hour drive. Uh, it's a beautiful mountain town. They've uh, kept a lot of the historic features and vibes of probably the gold rush days. 
But there's an old road that you can take called Old Banner Road that is scattered with abandoned mines that are still open. It's a public road, actually. So the cops aren't going to bust you. Cops aren't going to bust you. There's uh, old mills and just just old equipment that the miners use. We found miners graffiti in there from like the 1930s. Pretty cool. It is. It's really cool. All right. So let's talk, go beyond abandoned to some hidden gems, okay? Okay. And the hidden gems I'm looking for, where are you going to take me to breakfast? (laughs) Um... So I was thinking about this, and one of my favorite places to go is Palomar Mountain. And what I like to do before then is eat at the Yellow Deli, which is, it's actually a commune. There's a lot of controversy with that commune alone, but they grow their own food and they have a little deli. What's about the Yellow Deli? So the Yellow Deli is, um, it's a commune, and they actually have... Uh, what would it be called? I don't know if it's called tribes or whatever, all over the United States. And there's a lot of controversy with them, but whenever I go there, they're super nice. They kind of look Amish. They all pull their money together and um, they've created these adorable little restaurants built by like homemade wood and dumb waiter and stuff like that. And you just really feel like you're going back into the old days. It kind of has Disneyland type music there. The food is delicious. What it's, kind of food? Um, sandwiches and stuff like that. But it's the fact that it's just all homegrown and you can really taste the difference. Not bad. Yeah. What about lunch? Where are we going for lunch? So I was thinking Cordiano Winery. It's in Escondido. It's got an amazing view. Sicilian owned family. They're from Sicily. They make delicious pizza and some of the best wine, but it's really those views that are just so lovely. And of course, we can't leave out dinner. Well, being that I'm into hidden gems, I thought we would go to a speakeasy. And I was thinking the grass skirt because they have not only alcohol, but food as well. And so you start by going to a pokey restaurant. Wait, wait, wait. Where's the pokey restaurant? It's in Pacific Beach. Okay. You go through a freezer door. And once you go through the freezer door, it takes you to a hidden bar that's tiki themed. (laughs) And what's really fun is you can buy this drink. It's like $30, but it's enough for several people. And they light it on fire. And then once they light it on fire, the whole bar changes tempo and it mimics a tropical rainstorm and this drumming music and stuff. So it's a really immersive experience. All right. So wait, you've got now you got the pokey uh-huh. and you got the drinks, uh-huh. but where's dinner? That is. Well, no, no, no. It oh, has all on. different types of food. There. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. No, it's a pokey bar that you, a restaurant that you go through, ah. but then it's not just pokey they serve. Cool. Well, there's so many different kinds of pokey now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And th- Are you a vegetarian? I'm a pescatarian. Me too. Really? Absolutely. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So any kind of fish, any kind of shellfish, any seafood, I'm in. I couldn't turn that down. I, I've been pescatarian for about 15 years now. I could never give up the fish. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've been a pescatarian for about 11 years. Okay. Now, do I miss the meat? You bet, but oh. I do, but I don't eat it. I yeah. don't eat it of any kind. If you do, if I do it on accident, I get really sick. That's not just your mind playing tricks. Oh on no, you? no, no! I get physically ill. <laughs> like when I don't even realize, I'm like, oh, there was meat in this. I can tell. So. See, my biggest problem is I'll order clam chowder and they'll have bacon in there, and you uh-huh. can't. You know, you know, you gotta check. You always ask ahead of time. I know. But sometimes they they say no, and and it's not true. I know. I know. A lot of times, I used to work at a restaurant. They would say the rice is vegetarian, but it was cooked with chicken broth. Yep. So can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got sick and had to go home. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jessica Johnson is the author of Abandoned San Diego and also the founder of HiddenSanDiego.net. So all the stuff that we've been talking about, the abandoned mines, uh, the, uh, the, the all the graffiti where the cops bust you, um, and, and, the, and the hidden caves, it's all in there, is yep. it? Yes, it is. I have over 50, 450 spots on my website. Whoa. Yeah, and a Hidden California website as well. So I cover the entire state also. Well, then while we're on <laughs> it, what's the one that's the craziest one of all? Uh, in, in San Diego? Yeah. Or, I don't, the old theater is pretty crazy to break into. I had to have a homeless lady tip me off how to get in because we couldn't figure out how to get inside. And then she was like, are you a cop? And I'm like, no, I'm a photographer. And she's like, okay, go under, you know, the, she showed me the soft spot. She's like, be careful of the shadow people though. Be it's, careful of the shadow people. <laughs> inside, yeah. Unbelievable. All right, Jessica Johnson, I'll, I'll be careful of the shadow people <laughs> and the bacon and the clam chowder. <laughs> Uh, my next guest, we've been talking about her the entire show, actually, because uh, of all the good work that she does. Uh, I am a big fan of what she does. Uh, my family does that. My sister rescues dogs. Um, and I don't believe in doing anything other than rescuing dogs uh, when you travel. And you can. And uh, it's a, we call it the Animal Pad. And, and it's right here in San Diego. And she's the founder and president when she's not doing her real estate business. <laughs> Stephanie Nissan, how are you? Good, how are you? How did you start this? 
You know, I just, I knew my whole life that I was going to do something in the rescue world and I was going to save animals somehow. And, um, I, but, but you're not a shelter. No, foster base. You just, you're finding dogs and pairing them with. So we find dogs in Mexico. Right. We bring them across the border. We have a kennel facility that we rent out locally. We quarantine them for 10 days where we have volunteers there morning, noon, and night to feed, medicate, socialize. No trouble getting the dogs over the border? We, we know ways around it. Not our first rodeo. But we know exactly, you know, if certain, if the dogs look too sick, Border Patrol might say something and might not let you cross. Or, But usually a bunch of girls crossing dogs, we have no problem. It's an all-women posse here? I mean, I don't want to say it's all women. All of my directors are women. I have 14 directors and 14 departments. Um, and, and how often are you going across the border? Um, we're, I mean, almost weekly. Almost weekly, but we have a whole team within Mexico that also crosses the dogs for us, so we don't necessarily always have to go down physically. So these are the Mexi-Mutts. These are the Mexi-Mutts, our beloved magical Mexi-Mutts. And how can somebody volunteer with you guys? Well, we're all volunteers. Nobody's paid in the organization. But I'm saying somebody visiting San Diego can just call you guys up and say, hey, I want to do this. Absolutely. Um, we usually always have dogs at our kennel facility, anywhere from 10 to 20 at a time. So you, you're not a shelter that we're, but you do have a kennel that you use. We do, for the, just for the quarantine. And right. then we go directly to foster homes. So from there, um, we do at least one event a week. We're real event heavy. We're really community focused because we can't do this without the community. And so we do really fun events. You'll never find us in front of Petco holding leashes as an adoption event, but you'll find us at a brewery. You'll find us at a wine bar. You'll find us at... Oh, now the truth can be told. Yes, now yes. the truth can be told. I mean, listen, if I'm getting everyone to work for free, I got I to gotta pay them somehow. So uh, we keep it fun. We keep it entertaining. So and anybody's welcome at any of our events. We, we adore getting people from out of town. And what here. are the requirements for me to adopt a dog? Um, so we do have an application process. Um, from there, we will do a home check and make sure that, you know, you're not psychotic and then um as long as you check out pretty cool um we make sure that the dog meets your dog your family gets along with everybody and then from there you can adopt the dog now for somebody visiting san diego i've seen so many programs in other locations around the world this happens a lot in the caribbean and places like the turks and caicos where they have the the pot cakes that they call them uh the abandoned dogs that they've actually done deals with airlines and with different organizations so that if you want to adopt a dog they will get the dog certificated they will get the dog vaccinated and in one case they'll have an airline that will volunteer to let you take the dog home for free yeah and there's i'm actually a nonprofit called pilots for paws um, and they do something similar where they, they'll fly dogs from high kill shelters all over the country to rescues or to adopters. Um, for us, all of our dogs are completely vetted. We regularly, where we rescue mainly from is a shelter in Ensenada, where for people from out of town... Is that a high kill shelter? It's actually a no kill shelter. Even better. Uh, um, and it's quote unquote volunteer run, but not really. There's, there's a lot of... In, it, it's Mexico and there's a lot of stuff that happens there that we don't quite understand. But... Bottom line is the shelter is equipped for about 40 dogs. They regularly have about 300. So we are the sole rescue support for them because nobody, a lot of rescues now are in TJ. When I first started rescuing from Tijuana, yeah, from Tijuana, when I first started rescuing from there, there was, it felt like we were alone on an island and we were the only rescue operating there. Now there's a lot. Now that the people that live in TJ, there's been a huge shift in the way that they think they're rescuing the dogs. They've got Facebook groups going. They're trying to get them to San Diego and out of Mexico. So it's, it's wonderful. But in Ensenada, about every six weeks, actually this Sunday, um, we take about 60 volunteers down to the shelter and we work at the shelter because these dogs are in kennels that are, you know, there's 40 or 50 dogs in a kennel, for example. Um, they never get individual individual bowls of food. They don't get walked. They don't get one-on-one attention. They don't and get if one gets sick, they all get sick. Exactly. And so what we do, why we do this every six weeks is we always say, this is the best day of these dogs' lives until we come back and do it again. So each dog, each volunteer usually circles through about four to six dogs during the trip. They each get a really nutritious bowl of food, multiple bowls of food usually, water. They get a walk sometimes for the first time in their lives. They get one-on-one attention. They get to bond with people. Um, and then from there, we take all the volunteers to a nice seaside lunch, 
get them a margarita or two because it's depressing. So we, you know, we want to bring it up a little bit. And then um, we have a sponsorship program where if they bond with a dog, these dogs in Mexico have things like TBT which are STDs for dogs, which in America we're not used to. Right. Um, they have a lot of diseases we're not used to. So it costs us on average about 500 per dog to get them just healthy. So we say, you, if there was a dog you met on the trip that you bonded with that you want to get out of that shelter, meet us in the middle, fundraise 250, and we'll bring them up here to our kennel facility. And that's how we cycle them out, about 50 to 60 dogs a month. I love it. Stephanie Nissan, who's the founder and president of The Animal Pad. Their website again, theanimalpad.org slash volunteer. show I get to talk to the chefs wherever we are and our chef here at the hotel is Augie Saucedo how are you sir I'm doing good sir how are you I have a story to tell you Augie that you didn't hear before because I haven't told you this before okay uh, when I checked into the hotel uh, I when you walk in the lobby here uh, there's there you can eat in the lobby yeah and, and which is cool and I looked over at the bar and said well let's see what they've got on the menu I walked over to the bar and there are four people sitting at the bar and each one of them had ordered french fries okay and I looked at those french fries and said those look really good. And I ordered them, and they are really good. And I tried to figure out, how did you cook them? Because they were, I mean, really crisp on the outside. Right. Soft on the inside. The only time I've ever had French fries like that was when they were, and this is like, of course, for me, politically incorrect, was when they were cooked in duck fat. Oh, oh yeah, duck fat. Yeah. I see, you know, I know, <laughs> yeah. all you guys like that stuff. <laughs> but, you, but you didn't use that, did no, you? No, no. No, so basically what we did, and I can't take credit for those fries. They, those were here before I got here. You just copied the recipe. Well, I just followed the recipe. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so they, there's a coat that they put on it, and then we just deep fry them. Pretty simple. What's really the, simple. What is the coat? Oh. Come on. Dude. Come on. Don't give me the Colonel Sanders <laughs> stuff here. There's no secret recipe. Come on. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just flour. It's, it's some seasoning, salt, pepper, things like that. Um, but the key is really just to uh, pre-cooking the, the uh, fry beforehand, cutting them, and then and then pre-cooking them a little bit, pre-boiling them, letting them settle down for a little bit, and then coating them and then frying them. Okay, yeah. I, I'm, I'm in. I love it. <laughs> now, you're a Riverside, California boy. I am originally from the Riverside area, correct, yeah. Right, yeah. but then you moved around like everybody does. Well, I moved down to, to San Diego. Um, initially, I wanted to take my kids out of Riverside and kind of raise them in a, in a different area, so... Uh, but I started my career at the Mission Inn Hotel, which is kind of like the landmark. That's his, historic you landmark can't, hotel. You can't get yeah. more historic than the Mission Inn in Riverside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of started my career there. I worked there for about five years and then decided I wanted to be a, a San Diego boy. Now, is there a different kind of cuisine in San Diego? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think, um, I think Riverside kind of lacks a little bit in, in the creativity part. Um, but San Diego does have a lot to offer. There's a lot of um, uh, just... We're, we're so blessed here in San Diego to have a lot of uh, farms and, and, and the agriculture down here. The weather lends for um, a lot of um, fresh produce, so it's, it's, it's advantageous to be down here in San Diego. Do you have a signature dish? A signature dish, wow. You know, that's kind of like, you're, it's like you're almost asking me to pick my favorite kid. Do I have a favorite no, kid? No, 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 not your favorite kid. <laughs> the audience's favorite kid. Yeah, right? well, um, kind of what you see right here in front of you, if you look to your right a little bit, we have... On our uh, on our bar menu, our lamb barbacoa tacos, and the twist to it is it's got a Mediterranean twist to it. So, it's got tzatziki, pomegranates, um, feta cheese, which kind of gives it a whole different Mediterranean twist. But it brings San Diego culture to the table with uh, with the lamb barbacoa and the and the tacos. Now you see, I was thinking more seafood. Yeah, yeah. So, what is your signature seafood dish? Oh man. Um, geez, anything, any kind of fish that's in season right now. So a couple of months ago we had Alaskan halibut right now. I'm doing a poached, uh, lock door salmon. Um, but you know, I had that today. Did you have that today? What lovely. You think? Lovely. Yeah. With the lentils and the pea puree. Yeah. 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 It wasn't bad. <laughs> Thank you. You even had some fried capers in there. No, those were lentils. Those are lentils? lentils. Yeah, those are black. Black. They're called uh, beluga lentils because they resemble the the caviar. See, who knew? Yeah. Okay. Now yeah. I'm learning. I'm learning. Yeah. Now look, I always like to ask the chefs this question, so sure. I, you're, you're no exception. Sure. 
You've been here about a year. Correct. So what's the item that you put on the menu? That everybody's going to love this item. It, you, it would be flying off the, out of the kitchen, and it tanked. And it tanked? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, oh, you know what? Okay, I got it. The, you said seafood. So last summer, I did a, uh, a seafood ceviche. And when I was in La Jolla, I, I, we couldn't produce it fast enough. It was just flying out the windows. Uh, you know, it was right by the beach. So obviously, you know, it was something that people liked. I tried it here, and it didn't work. It just didn't work. Did you ever figure out why? <clears throat> I think it was because of the area. We're in downtown. We're not close to the beach. There's not that, there's not that tie between the ocean and you know, the restaurant. You know what I mean? Well, here's what you do. Put it back on the menu. Just call it downtown ceviche. Yeah, I might do that. <laughs> I might do that. I'm going to try that next summer. See I'm, how I'm telling you. Get down with our downtown ceviche. There you, oh, get down with our downtown ceviche. See? I like that. Okay, I like that. And by the way, what's the one item you put on the menu that you thought... Who's going to want it? Or do I really have to put this on the menu? Who's going to order this? And they did fly out of the kitchen. Oh, man. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. You know, I, I have to say the, the item I knew was going to sell and it did was probably my chilaquiles in the morning. Okay. Explain what that is. Chilaquiles? Yeah. It's kind of, you know, um, there's, a, there's a gentleman who works here with us and he's from the East Coast and he has no idea what that is. And the best way I could describe it By to the him way, was. By the way, I'm from the East Coast and I have no idea what that is. <laughs> All right. We, we, uh, the best way I could describe it was it's called breakfast nachos. So you take tortilla chips, you take a, a, a salsa verde, and chorizo, and eggs, and avocado, and cheese. I keep going with everything keep that's going, in it. Keep going. And um, you just put it all together. You marry it all together, and you put the eggs on top. It's, it's Now, you know how to get me to, to order that? How's that? Call it downtown breakfast tacos. <laughs> no, breakfast nachos. Downtown Excuse breakfast nachos. Nachos, yeah. yeah that is it. I'll there do it. Go. I'm in. <laughs> August Saucedo, the, the executive chef here at the Hotel Republic here go. in San Diego. Hey, we're out of time. Thank you for coming. That was my pleasure. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.